Many years ago, I read a, a very inspiring teaching, which I shared a lot here at Mission Dharma on Tuesdays, the teaching from a, an Advaita Vedanta master named uh, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj. And in this teaching, he said, and I mention this tonight just because we have some, we have some issues in this world that are hard to bear. And, and he said that the world that we live in is the way it is because people are the way they are. And as long as people are the way they are, the world will continue to be the way it is. And that if we truly want a peaceful world, it is necessary that we have peaceful people. It's not something that can be imposed on the world. It has to start within the hearts and minds of each person. This is not to say that we should just let the world go to anarchy while we're busy making ourselves peaceful, but, but never to, never to undervalue the social power of awakening <laughs> to the light, <laughs> awakening the the light of awareness and then all the, the qualities, the fragrance that flows from, uh, from the efforts that we make to change our hearts. And in that way we participate in a form of what some call subtle social action. I call it radical social action. For you to show up here, to me, it's, it's, it's radical. It's against the stream of everything, the whole momentum of the world is, is keep busy. How are you? Busy. You know the Amy Krauss Rosenthal? How are you? Busy. How's your week? Good. Busy. You name the question, busy's the answer. She says we're terribly busy doing terribly important things. And, but more often than not, that's our simple knee-jerk response. And and the way she put it, she says, have people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were busy too? This week is crazy. I've got about 10 caves to draw on. Can I meet you by the fire next week? And she says, I think it's because of the advent of coffee bars and coffee's luscious byproduct productivity, the joy of doing, accomplishing, crossing off. Then she says, well, as the kids are Answer to every question, you know, what'd you learn at school today? What, what's new? Nothing. She said, I'm starting to think that like youth, the word nothing's being wasted on the young and we need to reintroduce it into our grown-up vernacular. I say it a few times and I start to feel myself a little quieter, decaffeinated, meditative. And then I realize, how did I get so far away from it? Because we're, we're so caught in the trance of busy. And busy makes us tight. And makes us spend so many of our moments in a state of suspended happiness. In a state of passing through quickly the present moment on our way to, to hope, dreams, plans, 
worry about when the world is going to change or we're going to get what we want or get rid of what we don't want. And that actually turns the life that we have, the only moments that we have, into, uh, as Eckhart Tolle put it, into a pass-through on our way to someplace else or into an obstacle or even the enemy. The present moment becomes the enemy. The only place where we can bring peace to this world is the very moment that we are living right now. So the fact that you come and stop is radical. And fortunately, there are a lot of people stopping these days. I get the emails from a... There, there are lots of what, what are called secular mindful centers now popping up. There's one called uh, Anchor Meditation. I don't know how many of you... But she sends wonderful emails giving mindful tips and, and, and you go there and, and hang out with other people who are meditating. And, so they're, and it's a business. And it, you know, people are doing this. You know, it's fine if it's a business as long as people stop and pay attention and wake up. Remember the Buddha was called, uh, the Buddha means awake. It wasn't, I'm a special person. I'm a... God, I'm a this, I'm awake. That's all he could say. Awake. And it's, it was from stopping in the way that you are, that you're part of the lineage, whether you, you don't have to be a Buddhist, you're, but you're awake when you awaken to the reality of the present moment. Of course, if you sustain that wakefulness, if you truly take to heart the, the longing for a place of refuge and safety, a place of freedom, if you really take it to heart and you get the inclination that it is an inside job, that it really is to be discovered within your own heart, and you really take it to heart, and you use some of the methods that the Buddha recommended, you know, in the Satipatthana Sutra, the Sutra on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, he says, put your damn mind in the same location as your body. Don't let it go out. Too f- don't let it wander too far into uh, the imagined past or future. They don't really exist anyway. And it'll mostly, once you... Once you sp- enter into time, which is what, you know, our imagination is all about entering into time. Now, of course, if you notice that you're imagining, you notice that you're fantasizing, you notice that you're having a creative flourish, that's beautiful. As long as you're awake to what your mind is doing. But if you're lost in your plans or your memories, lost in thought, then you have jumped into time, taken it to be real, and then when it's future-oriented, your body goes into tension about whether or not the future will turn out the way you want. When it's past-oriented, you tend to contract in, in remembering and trying to fix something that may have happened before or replay or try to rely on a memory for, your, for well-being. And even though pleasant memories are marvelous, if we notice we're experiencing a pleasant memory, great. But if you're caught up 
in just replaying the past, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, you've jumped into time and you've, you've actually sowed the seeds in your heart-mind, in your body-mind, for tension. Our body goes into freeze. So this first idea was put your mind in the same location as your body and because uh, your body is always present. That's why I always start the sitting. I basically slip in some variation on the four foundations of mindfulness. Notice your body, first foundation. And that includes the whole range of sensations that may become stronger than the sensations of breathing. And then the second foundation of mindfulness, and, and I don't often highlight this, I do on retreats when it's more systematic development of the instructions, but notice that some of the sensations you experience, some of the experiences are pleasant, some are unpleasant, some are neither pleasant or unpleasant. If you get to know this, if you get to know this as the way it is, you'll actually see how you go from simple, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral experience to how that your reactions to those experiences send you down a, the road of time. Send you, when it's pleasant, it registers a feeling of liking, and liking tends to be followed by wanting. Pretty soon the mind, the tension of that, those reactions tend to generate a whole fantasy of, of perpetuating the pleasure or having more. And when it's unpleasant, there's a not liking. The not liking is followed by aversion. Aversion creates tension. And then that release of tension comes in the form of planning our revenge or, or you know, railing against Donald Trump or whoever it is that, that our aversive mind goes. And if we could, on the other hand, I know this is, for some of you, this is Dharma 101. If we could just learn to accommodate in real time an unpleasant experience and to be able to know, oh, this is unpleasant, this feeling that I'm experiencing. And begin to see if we could navigate the unpleasant and the pleasant. And if we could navigate the neither pleasant or unpleasant, that's even, it's subtle when we're not having a pleasant or an unpleasant. When it's neither pleasant or unpleasant, because we're so addicted to stimulation, we space out. And when we space out, we start creating the imaginary version of ourselves. And then we fall into delusion. So the neutral, if you can hang out with neutral, it spreads out into the quality of balance and equanimity and peace. And you, you get to know, you get to know the the, um, the capacity that you have for, for peace. If you can accommodate the, the pleasant and feel it, it cuts the chain so that your mind doesn't get into a state of craving. Because once it gets into a state of craving, then you are saying to yourself in the moment that you're caught in a desire, you're saying, I can't be happy now. Something I need, I have to have something I have to get somewhere, I have to become someone in order to be happy. And so your happiness becomes conditional. And then you start grabbing at things that you think will make you happy, and of course the world will conspire to support you to go shopping and to be addicted to everything under the sun. And you will fall into the Hafez 
uh, concept of counterfeit coins. You know what he said about counterfeit coins? He said, learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. You've heard this. Because we get caught in, in what the Buddha described as misplaced faith in momentary experiences of pleasure. Or if you, in the reaction to, if you can't accommodate the unpleasant and you, you find yourself in the cycle of aversion, you'll find yourself screaming at someone, blaming someone for your own dis-ease. You'll find yourself planning revenge. You'll find yourself... Um, yeah, just having, having an internal narrative, an aversive negative view on reality. And that's just a, several steps down the road of, of a reaction to the unpleasant. If you can feel the unpleasant, oh, this is really unpleasant. Really take it in. You'll see that unpleasant is a changing feeling state. And it's one of the three kinds of flavors that arise with every moment's experience. If we can accommodate it, the unpleasant uh, gives way to, uh, actually it gives way to a little self-compassion when you feel how unpleasant things can be. If it goes unnoticed, it just tends to generate an aversion and we tend to blame everybody for what we're experiencing. I don't know how often you consider that no one is to blame for your feelings. But neither are you. Feelings are a function of, of, condition, of habits of mind, of conditioning. Most conditioning is innocent, so that's why I say it's not your fault either. But it, it comes because we tend to fall into we t- our natural great peace that I described in the sitting it becomes clouded by what the Buddha described and what he recognized when he finally sat down as the three poisons, the three root causes of what torments our minds, what causes us suffering. Again, Dharma 101, greed in the mind, grasping, wanting what I don't have. Aversion in the mind, you know, in all its flavors of of uh, irritation, frustration, anger, rage, uh, fear, um, even boredom, a kind of aversion. So greed in the mind, aversion in the mind, and uh, delusion in the mind. And delusion, ignorance, ignorance is not personal, it's not, you're an ignorant person. Ignorance is not understanding what it is that um, causes us stress, not understanding of what in our mental habits causes us stress, and what is it in our mental habits can bring liberation, freedom, what can allow us to reclaim our heritage, what can allow us to stop feeling like we are in some way uh, I'm thinking of the Thich Nhat Hanh poem in some way that we're destitute, that there's, that there's something wrong, there's something wrong with me. You know, that 
his beautiful poem, the central line in one of his poems is, you who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child, come home, reclaim your heritage. So how do we reclaim our heritage? We reclaim it through understanding, through wise view, seeing clearly. And what the Buddha saw was greed in the mind makes you, when greed is in the mind, you makes you think you can't be happy now. When aversion is in the mind, you, your mind is telling you conditions have to change. You have to get rid of conditions that are hard to bear. Otherwise, you can't be happy. Delusion in the mind is believing that, that uh, is, is not understanding that greed and hatred are actually giving you uh, misinformation. Delusion in the mind says, yeah, I can satisfy my, I can become happy by satisfying my hunger. But as the, the Buddha realized that, that the kind of happiness that comes from satisfying hunger, from satisfying our desires, it makes us hungrier. Is that a word? More hungry? It actually increases the feeling of dissatisfaction because every time we depend, put misplaced faith on, on, on the next experience we have, the weekend, the, the, the party, whatever it is that we put our hopes and dreams is, I'm not saying you shouldn't look forward to things, but it's about perspective. It's not having misplaced faith that something's going to make you happy. Because every time we do that, our mind leans toward what's next, colors the present moment is not enough. We get what we want, sometimes, sometimes we don't. And when we get what we want, the pleasure is felt, but then it quickly fades and it leaves in its wake more, di- more desire. Pretty soon our mind, uh, the most frequent visitor in my mind is I want what I don't have. Does it, can you relate to this? And then we wonder why we don't feel complete. Is it because I am not complete? And then that, because that's the narrative, I'm not enough. That's the story that goes with the, with the wanting mind. And having misplaced faith in the objects of, of our senses and desires. Same as with, with uh, you can see that it's the first line of the, or second line of the Dhammapada, one of the compilation of the teachings of the Buddha, where he says, hatred never ceases by hatred. So when we practice ill will and aversion and just dump our, our aversion, does it give us any relief? It just, it hardens the muscle of ill will. Pretty soon we're irritating, irritated and irritating to be with because our mind is filled with ill will. So when, when the Buddha, Buddha, it's all about him, and all about us realizing our Buddha nature, realizing that we are also awake, intrinsically. He recognized that there are a lot of 
a lot of sense experiences to navigate. Because if you're, the moment you're born, you are inundated with sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, and thoughts. And, and thought being the mental door of perception, plus the five physical senses, you are inundated from the moment you wake up. Uh, moment you come out of the, the womb, and maybe even before, who knows. Every moment is accompanied with a valence of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral from the time you're born. And, and depending on, on your level of clarity, and of course we're innocent, and when we're young we don't have much clarity, we're continually reacting with liking, disliking, and spacing out. And when we finally get to adult age, we have completely incarnated in, in, a, in an, uh, an imaginary story of time that I'm coming from the past, passing through the present, on my way to the future. And before we're even adult age, we've lost touch with the only reality in the present moment. And we've lost touch with our, our fundamental nature, which is awake. Prior to our, all of our differences, prior to our, all of our identities, all of our stories, we're fundamentally awake. So once we've fallen into that, we, have to, we, we need some kind of remedial help. That's why we practice. So it's an amazing thing that you could even, in the morass of confusion, that, that, there are, that something in you just keeps calling you back to yourself. And thank goodness that you, you could be out harming people or harming yourself more. And you're here um, trying to practice harmlessness, trying to wake up. That's a beautiful thing. Do you value yourself? Or, I mean, does it gladden your heart to know that you're taking care of the world and yourself by stopping? It's, a, it's such a beautiful thing. But the... Just getting back to the what awaken what what helped the Buddha awaken is he said yeah from the time you're born it's really tough is your your senses are being impinged upon you're reacting and it's hard to be with and what makes it harder is if you get caught up in in um, in this constant craving for what's next for more for becoming for or the past, future, whichever way your mind is going. But he also said that's the kind of root cause is this habit of greed and hatred, which is a kind of craving. But he also said that there's, a, there's an end to this. There's a cessation. There's a freedom that you can experience. A, a, a letting go of this tight fist of grasping, of trying to get somewhere, of trying to be somebody. There's, a, there's an end to that. And then there's finally, that's a third truth, there's a cessation, there's freedom that any human being can have. And the fourth truth is there's a, there's a way that you, can, that you can awaken in Every element of your, of your life, in your daily life, awaken with not acting out ways that cause suffering in your speech, 
not acting out ways that cause you suffering in your livelihood, not acting out ways that cause suffering in all your other actions. Um, If you train your attention to be, uh, to live in the present moment, if you put your mind back in your body and you stay there, as Ajahn Chah put it, don't let your mind leave your body. First thought every morning, don't let my mind leave my body. Because body's here. Clearly, our world is, is much more dominated by letting our mind live in our mind. Letting our thinking, letting our attention be caught captivated more with our thinking mind, depending much more on the rational mind and the figuring out mind that's always trying to create the version of ourselves that where we're a problem that needs to be solved. And so when, when, that, when you reflect on don't let your mind leave your body, I have yet to find a person when they're actually connected in the same place as their body, where I've yet to find somebody that can without consulting their memory or some, some story, they can find that you are a problem that needs to be solved. There's not one person here that's a problem that needs to be solved. We're all just sleeping Buddhas. Richest person on earth. Who, who in our imagination is begging for a living. So when we stop, when we cultivate the, the Noble Eightfold Path, the wise attention, wise concentration, wise effort, cultivate the wholesome. When I say cultivate the wholesome, it's really the antidotes for greed and hatred and delusion. What's the antidote for greed? Letting go through the practice of generosity. Giving our time, our energy, our resources, our love, of course, the, the antidote for ill will, aversion, that tendency to, to get reactively tight around things, people, situations, politicians, it's love. Cultivate love. So generosity, service, cultivate love. What's the antidote for, for delusion? It's to... Understand with wisdom. What did the Buddha understand with wisdom? Is all of our clinging to places, to people, to things, to situations, all the clinging brings suffering. Letting go brings freedom. Learning how to let go. You know what what Ajahn Sumedho said about letting go? You know, I'm not going to repeat Ajahn Chah. Tonight, you know, he's the one where he says, you, a little bit of letting go, you get a little peace, and a lot, you get a lot. I'm not going to say that, but I, I'll bring back Ajahn Sumedho, who simplified his practice, his entire practice, at one point, down to two words, letting go. He says, rather than develop this practice, and get into that, and achieve this, and go into that, and learn the Pali, and Sanskrit, and the Majamaka, and the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations, the Hinayana, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana, 
get to become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism, just let go. He says, I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. He says, so I'm trying to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. He says, there's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> but really the letting go that's, that is the antidote for uh, the, the antidote for delusion or ignorance is to see clearly that there is nothing in this world uh, that you can cling to and own because everything in this world right down to the, your own breath is arising and fading in every moment and our clinging brings us stress letting go brings freedom so we we train ourselves to stay here long enough. We link enough moments together. I call them NPMs. Noticings per minute. I, I link them together at some point, whether it's on retreat or daily life. You just link them together until you just can't help but see that there's no, nothing that you can cling to. Every thought, every feeling, every sensation, every sound, everything's coming and going becomes absurd. A notion of trying to hold anything. And it is through the releasing the tight fist of grasping, as Gendon Rinpoche says, that infinite space is there, is discovered, open, inviting, and comfortable. That's why he says, happiness can't be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. So don't... Strain yourself or learn to whatever it takes to stop straining so much. Let the entire life happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves. And notice how everything vanishes and comes back again, time, time and time again. He says only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it like a like a um, a dog trying to chase its own tail although peace and happiness do not exist as a thing or a place it accompanies you every instant he says also don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences that's a real trap they're like today's ephemeral weather like rainbows in the sky wanting to grasp the ungraspable you exhaust yourself in vain says, don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who's already resting quietly at home in front of your own fireplace. So, let go. So we let go through being generous. We let go through, through sharing goodwill and love. And we let go through wisdom through seeing that whatever arises passes away. And that's what Buddhas know. That's what makes Buddhas different than ordinary people. 
as they, uh, they're awake to the fact that there's nothing to cling to. And then we can go about with our hearts open, caring for this world and all its, all its pain, but with a, with a light touch so that we're not burned out. We're not burned out activists. Not burned out political, politically involved, but the, just the right, finding our own, as our own, with our own authority, finding that right balance of, of just letting our, following our heartbreak, letting, our, letting ourselves do, just out of care, take care of whoever's not being cared for. But also know that, that the world is the way it is because people are the way they are. Finding some kind of equanimity. As the classic line, developing equanimity, I care about you, world, but I may not be able to keep you from suffering. So having a balance of understanding. So let's all wake up together. And if Nelson Mandela can practice in prison, we can practice in our daily life. This is what he, may, what he said. You may find that the cell is an ideal place to get to know yourself, to search realistically and regularly the process of your own mind and feelings. In judging our progress as individuals, we tend to focus on external factors such as social position, influence and popularity, wealth and standard of education, but internal factors may be even more crucial in assessing one's development as a human being. Honesty, sincerity, simplicity, humility, purity, generosity, absence of vanity, readiness to serve your fellow beings, qualities within each of every, within the reach of every being, are the foundations of one's spiritual life. At least, if for nothing else, the cell gives you the opportunity to look daily into your conduct, to overcome the, the bad and develop whatever is good in you. And this is how he finishes. Regular meditation can be very fruitful in this regard. You may find it difficult at first to pinpoint the negative factors in your life. But the tenth attempt may reap rich rewards. Never forget that a saint is a sinner that keeps on trying. So, may our practice continue, may it increase, may it never wane, and may tonight's practice and everyday practice be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings. If there was any benefit tonight, let it be shared freely. May all beings awaken. May all beings learn to let go and forgive. May all beings be liberated. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.